ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Andy West first went into jail as a little kid to visit his older brother, Jason. Andy's father had done stints in jail all his life and so had Andy's uncle. Andy is in his 30s now and for the last six years he's been in prison regularly in some of London's overcrowded Victorian-era jails, in drug rehab units, in low-security centres in the countryside, and also in women's prisons and juvenile detention centres. But unlike his family members, Andy chooses to be in jail. He's a philosophy teacher, and he meets with inmates to explore ideas like truth, freedom, time and salvation. Andy's book is called The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family and philosophy. Hi, Andy. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure to have you. Can we start with with the story, the story of Odysseus and the Sirens that you share with your students? Yeah, so this is a story from the Odyssey where Odysseus is trying to get home and he is confronted with this challenge of the sirens, these bird women who have voices that are so beautiful. Any sailor who hears them will fall under their spell and swim to the sirens and sadly be eaten alive. Um, Odysseus tries to deal with this by uh, getting the men on his ship to plug their ears with uh, wax so they can't hear. However, Odysseus decides to tie himself to the mast so that he can hear, partly so he knows when the sirens have finished singing and it's safe to unplug, but also partly because he wants that kind of, that ecstasy, mm. that static joy that uh, the siren song offers without the peril. And I told the men in my class at a maximum security prison this story and my great colleague Pete Worley kind of builds in this extra element where there's a man who decides, actually, I want to take the wax out on the ship. A man who's, who's you know, been away from home for many years, is, is beyond homesick, has been in the war in Troy and has gone beyond the pain of that into a sort of state of numbness or something. And, and he sees the passion in Odysseus's eyes for this <laughs> music and, and he wants to know what it sounds like. So he takes the wax out of his ears, experiences that ecstatic joy momentarily, and then jumps off to get more of it where he's eaten. What question did you, did you pose to your students out of that story? I asked the men, of the three figures in the story, the men with the wax in their ears, Odysseus tied up, and the man who jumps off, who do you think is the most free and how do they answer that, Andy? Well, just like you, there's a sort of deep intake of breath <laughs> and, uh, and then a few hands go up. And, you know, one of the things asking these sorts of questions uncovers is that there's not just a prison experience. There's not just one prison or one prisoner. There's, there's so many different types of ways in which people relate to that experience and, and survive it and, and live it. So... You know, each figure sort of has uh, an advocate in the room. So one example is a guy who um, is in prison because he says he's a kind of entrepreneur. 
uh, who wears a very expensive watch on his wrist, even on the landing. And, you know, it's very much about living life fast and living it intensely, even if you end up in jail sometimes for it, that you're still going to kind of, uh, that's just part of the buzz almost. So which of the men in the story does he think is most free? Uh, Odysseus. He's, he sort of thinks that uh, Odysseus has had an experience that no one else has had. And the others are sort of foot soldiers, if you like, you know, they're sort of underlings, which is really interesting because there were other men in the room who said, it's the men with the wax in his ears. They're the most free, partly because of their ignorance, partly because they can get on with their day. And people were relating that to their prison experience, saying things like, you know, in here, I don't have to decide when I'm getting up, when I'm getting up, going out, if I'm going to buy a house. You know, I don't have to do the school run. I get fed when I get fed. I go out when I go out. And I said, are you saying that's a kind of freedom then? That like the men with the wax in their ears, prison is a kind of freedom. And he said, it's exactly that. Mm. It's a freedom from choice. And so, you know, we had a really interesting discussion about whether being free from choice is is better than being Captain Odysseus, who, who gets these glorious moments, often that he sort of suffers from, for in the end. What about the man who, who took the wax out and heard the siren song, but unlike Odysseus, wasn't chained to the mast and, and threw himself overboard? Did anyone think he was the most free? Yes, many people. Many people did. And I think that was partly because he's disobeying orders. <laughs> and in prison, you know, there's such a loss of autonomy that sometimes the only way you can feel like you're an individual again is to rebel, to disobey. But also there were other motivations people had for thinking he was the most free. They were partly around suicide, I think. Mm. Uh, the suicide rate in prison is seven times higher than it is in the general population, the last time I checked. And people were saying, well, you know, he, he decided that the homesickness, the journey home, that they may never get back to Ithaca, of course, the things he's seen, the, the emotional scarring he's he's had from the war. He made a choice to take the wax out of his ears. He knew he was going to fall under the spell. That was a choice, and therefore it, it was an act of freedom. And, of course, you do meet people in prison who are confronting questions about whether life is worth living. Uh, so the temperature in the room went up a little bit when we were having those conversations. It felt quite urgent. I guess that, you know, the, the primary punishment of jail is the denial of freedom. In what ways, in what kinds of ways do people seek to preserve some freedom, some sort of agency while they're locked inside? I think there's several ways people try and do just that, to try and preserve that agency. I had one man who I call Wallace in the book who'd been inside for about two decades really kept himself to himself, wasn't very socially engaged in prison. He'd read, he'd do his press-ups. And he told me that he was more free, his idea that he was more free than people outside because he had a mental freedom. And I asked him, what do you mean? And it was partly the discipline, the self-discipline he lived with. But also he would do things like at five o'clock every day, the officers would come and close your door and lock you in for the night well he would get off his bed at five minutes to five and push his own door shut so he was the one closing his door or when you're having a phone call on landing you're told 
you have to hang up in three minutes. Well, he would always put the phone down a minute before he was told he had to hang up in three minutes. And that was his way of achieving at least the sensation of autonomy, if not the real thing. You say that you talked about this story of Odysseus in a maximum security jail. What's the security screening like for you as an outsider, to, as a visitor, to enter a jail like that? Very rigorous. Uh, you know, you have to go through airport-style security. Your bag is scanned. You go through metal detectors. You're searched. You take your shoes off, uh, belt, all those kind of things. There's also something known as the boss chair, the body orifice security scanner, which checks just in case you have any contraband uh, in your one of your cavities. Uh, you know, people smuggling in drugs and phones and weapons that kind of thing. And once you're inside, Andy, how noisy is jail? It very much depends on on the prison. But um, Pentonville, for example, one of the prisons I work in, is 180 years old and was built to house less than half the amount of people that it actually holds now, uh, such as the overcrowding problem in our prison system. So it's an old, very claustrophobic urban prison with 1,300 people in it. So there's there's always noise, you know, there's always uh, either either when people are unlocked, you know, just the rumble of footsteps on the stairs, just all the hard surfaces and, and just the kind of the echo that that generates and the cacophony of echoes, the sound of daytime TV, the sound of alarms going off in cells. It's It's a frenetic... Uh, space hmm. to be in. I know someone in prison who meditates, but he deliberately meditates at four in the morning because he says that's the only time the landing is quiet. And when you're standing by the door room of your classroom waiting for students to arrive, what do the guards call out to, to let, let it be known that it's the time where people can move around the prison? Well, ironically, the phrase is free flow. Uh, so people are unlocked and people go to, you know, wherever they're going, a workshop, uh, healthcare, education, they're working uh, in a job, you know, the laundry or the servery or something. There's just a bit more movement. You know, philosophy can seem uh, a daunting subject. When you began teaching in prisons, were you worried that men whose education might have been really disrupted, their formal education, that they mightn't be able to follow the content of what you wanted to talk about? Yes, and and I think there is um there's a there's a mode of doing philosophy that's very dry and abstract and analytical and and that has its place of course. But really I think philosophical questions are they they go deep for everybody. Questions about what justice should look like. That's important to everyone. Questions about um whether we end up with the lives that we have because of luck or because of choices. Everyone has a f- quite deeply held feelings and thoughts about that. So, so I think philosophy can be alienating or a bit lofty, but it needn't be. And for me, a lot of the reason that I became interested in philosophy, I think, and that these questions became so imperative for me to think about, was that I'd been visiting family in prison and that I'd been made to reckon with questions about justice, freedom, forgiveness, you know, all these kind of things. So in a way, I was 
it, it may seem like a mismatch taking this sort of philosophy, you know, from from the salon to the prison. But but really, I was taking it sort of back to the prison, hmm. if you like, from my childhood. And why are the other prisoners deciding to take a class in philosophy? What sort of motivations were they coming with? Well, um, all kinds, you know, um, boredom is such a, a big factor in prison and it's um, there's not a lot of meaningful activity. So coming with that, trying something new, a lot of prison education is very rudimentary. It's about, I would say it's about maths and English. It's actually about numeracy and literacy. It's very rote. So to actually have something which engages your brain a bit more and is less didactic, I think people are attracted to. I, I had a, a man... Um, say to me a couple of years ago, are you the philosophy teacher? And I said, yeah. And he said, I used to think the reason I was here was that it was predestined, but I've been thinking about it and maybe it's not. So I need another explanation. <laughs> uh, could I come to your class? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good motivation for any philosophy student. What are you self-conscious, I guess, particularly in the early days, Andy, standing in, in front of this, this group of prisoners? What do they make of you? How do they read you, do you think? Uh, so at first I thought, oh, God, what's this going to be like? And I suppose having been the black sheep of the family, just having been a bit more sort of soft-skinned than everyone else, I think maybe sort of prepared me to play that role again of course as a teacher you you're kind of allowed that position and you know often often the conversations we'd get drawn into would be very um thoughtful and reflective and it's a real having a philosophical conversation with someone is a, is a great way to find out who someone is and, and who you are as well through that i think so so we bonded quite quickly there, there was a moment in my first year where i'd just been on holiday in Thailand and I got back and they were asking me lots of questions and I suppose I felt a little bit guilty about this you know they were asking me where I went to which beaches what the food was like I suppose I felt a bit awkward thinking you know you you guys are banged up for 20 hours a day like doesn't this doesn't this smart to hear all of this uh, but they were so curious and then and then one of them said did you go with your boyfriend and uh, I had a girlfriend at the time but I just sort of thought, oh, he, he thinks I'm gay. And I just, I felt the instinct to say, oh, no, I'm not gay. But I, I just sort of said, um, no, I was travelling alone, actually. <laughs> so you're, um, you're a closet heterosexual in, a, in the prison system. Well, I just sort of, it was, such a, it was such a lovely, tolerant thing to say in an institution that's normally so homophobic <laughs> that I didn't want to kind of, I didn't want to, damaged that moment in any way <laughs> so I didn't so I with that group I never sort of let them uh I never corrected them on my sexuality <laughs> one of the the philosophical propositions that you explore with your students is this idea of two fictional worlds the just world mm. and the luck world tell me about these two worlds what what distinguishes them so so what I say is imagine a world where it's entirely just Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Everyone is where they deserve to be. It's entirely meritocratic. The effort you put in determines your position. I now imagine another world where everything is entirely down to luck. 
where good things can happen to good people, but bad things can happen. And bad people can have great lives. And there's a total randomness to our existence. And what I ask my students is, which world is our world the most like? You know, and, and it's a really tricky question, that because often it's at, our world is so often at the sort of murky borderlands of this world where, uh, sure, your character and efforts and talents, you know, make up for, for part of where you end up. But uh, not always, you know, we know that the world is really unfair. We know that if you have adverse childhood experiences, you grow up in poverty, uh, you belong to a minoritized group that's more likely to be criminalized for their drug use than uh, the political classes, for example. And it's a question that I think is ever present for me, partly through my relationship with my brother. He's been to prison about a dozen times. And I've only been to prison with a keychain on my belt. Hmm. So that question of what determines a life, is it luck, is it choice, is really pertinent to me. Tell me a bit about your family, Andy. How old was, was your father when he first went to prison, do you know? I wouldn't know, actually, the age. But um, before I was born, uh, so I was born in the mid-80s, he would have... He would have been in prison before that. And then he was sort of often in scrapes and trouble with the law. When your mum and dad were still together, were your dad's run-ins with the law something your mum tried to hide? Do you remember that? I think I think for mum there was a sense of being with this quite calamitous, aggressive figure who she had to sort of manage a lot. There's a moment where my dad, coming home drunk, smashes the window of a jewellery store and takes hands full of diamonds and pearls, which my mum tries to deal with by flushing them down the toilet, only to find out that they were fake anyway, that he'd actually only stolen a display model jewellery that sort of wasn't quite competent enough to be a real thief. (laughs) After your parents broke up, what did your dad do for work first off? Uh, Often working in sales, um, things like that, you know, jobs that often involved a lot of surface, you know, uh, sort of scrubbing up, putting on a good suit, putting on your charm Mm. and having having a, a bit of a silver tongue. Often he would lose jobs quite quickly because he'd fallen out with someone or something funny was happening with money or something like that. So it was a sort of superficial charm turning to aggression cycle. He moved around a lot, changed his name a lot during that period. What was it like for you as a little kid visiting him, spending time with him? Um, I think it made me quite nervous. Yeah, yeah, it made me quite nervous. I suppose there was this sense of menace of just being young and having to maintain a deception, you know, we, he, he used fake names a lot to introduce himself to people and I suppose there was just a sense of danger or menace attached to that for me. How did things change in your relationship when you were 12? I think I was feeling more and more like I wanted to disentangle but that was quite hard to assert, you know, it's quite hard to break up with your parents when you're still a child. Um... But in a letter correspondence we had, he told me he 
was facing jail time, and I sort of used that as an opportunity to disconnect. Your brother Jason is 12 years older than you. Tell me about the time you and your mum went to visit him on a Christmas Eve. Yeah, so it was Christmas Eve, and my mum said, get in the car, we're going to go and see your brother. He's, he's working in a job in a big factory far away. And I thought this was a bit strange because I'd never known my brother to have a job. (laughs) Uh, And when we got there, you know, we pulled up outside this huge building that had a massive wall around it. We had to go through security. There were prison officers inside that were escorting. As as a seven-year-old, this is is an irregular job set up? Well, yeah, of course I, I could tell quite easily... And, you know, it was a Christmas Eve and so there was... I looked around the room and I saw a lot of relatives visiting their fathers or brothers or husbands inside and, and just the kind of the terrible sadness of of that room. You know, I, I could I could really feel it. It's, it's such a common trope. You know, I went into a visitor centre uh, just the other day in a prison... And there's a poster on the wall with a young child looking sort of confused. There's a speech bubble saying, um, is daddy working away again? And because because imprisonment isn't, you know, there's a lot of shame and stigma around it. And there's not a lot of support there for children. It's it's often, you know, when, when people are ashamed, they, they tend to sort of lie mm. or conceal the truth. And obviously it's a very big truth to tell such a kind of young child. So it's it's very common, but I, I did sort of twig. I, you know, I'd seen so many prison TV dramas or whatever at home that I sort of said, no, we're, we're definitely in a prison. <laughs> did yeah. you look up to him when you were growing up, Andy? I did, yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of people admire their older siblings, don't they? This kind of fascinating... Uh, creature that's in the house and uh, sort of knows a bit more about the world than you do and I suppose that was also twinned with a feeling of you know these constant messages from him of sort of don't be like me Mm. (laughs) which I you know I suppose I could have reacted to that with a sort of shrug and why are you such a hypocrite you know I'll do what I like but actually I I took them as uh, wisdom and, and in, a, in a sense, that's how I interpreted this deception of uh, we're not in a prison, we're visiting your brother in a factory. I sort of took that as a message of like, this world is not for you. Uh, you shouldn't know about this. You shouldn't have to know about this. Something else is meant for you. When you were a teenager, how would Jason introduce you to his friends? I suppose with a lot of a lot of pride, you know, he'd sort of, tell them I spent the first 33 years of my life completely teetotal so I didn't drink or do drugs or smoke at all and he would that's how he would kind of introduce me to everyone this is my brother he's never even smoked a fag uh, (laughs) roll up roll up check this out (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that was very much um you know to be that sort of purity was to be sort of protected and and celebrated whilst he was living his own you know, debauched, deranged, (laughs) very impure kind of existence. 
And he was in and out of, of jail on that cycle of drugs and, and imprisonment and a huge amount of violence in his life as well. Were you aware of that as the, as the little brother? I was, yeah. I mean, it's quite hard to imagine real violence, I think, especially to, to your loved ones. It's The mind just doesn't really want to get that graphic. But of course, you know, I would visit him in hospital. I would see him, you know, various injuries and infections from drugs or, you know, stab wounds or the, the world of heroin and hard drugs means becoming entangled with you know, very dangerous people a lot of the time. And I could see those marks on him. One thing that happened when I was writing the book is um, I interviewed him and uh, for a large part of that, we just, we went through the the geography of his body and, and various scars and how he'd got them. So, so yes, I, I was really aware of it and it was something that was happening during periods of separation and distance from us. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So as, as you suggest, you know, to outside eyes, Andy, it looked like you were really escaping this family legacy. You were staying clear of drugs and of crime. But what was going on on the inside? In some ways, it it felt very much like I was sort of breaking the cycle. There was a, a, a kind of mental and emotional hangover, a fallout from all of that, which I think was a feeling of kind of inherited guilt, a sort of sins of the father feeling that I was fated to go to prison too, to have some calamity or some crime that I would commit. And, you know, it wasn't really clear what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. It was just certain that I was. How young do you remember feeling that sort of profound sense of impending guilt? I think it was sort of around in flickers from, I think, about sort of eight or nine or something. And then I think at around 16, 17, it, it felt it, at its most overbearing and deterministic. And I would say my, the last few years of my teens were a real sort of uh, a fight against this, um, what would I call a kind of executioner in the head. You know, a, a sort of a judge and jury, a, a sort of um, a Kafka-esque sense that I've done something wrong. I must go to my trial. I, m- I must face consequences. The details, the content of which are irrelevant. Were you actually afraid that you'd be arrested? Like, was it as um, concrete as that, 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 that police would turn up and you'd be carted off without even really knowing I, what you'd done? I, I think in my late teens, yeah, you know, I would hear sirens and... Uh, stop! If I had if I had a police car in the street, I would stop and sort of just see if it was going to pull up next to me. Um, you know, it's a deeply irrational state, 
but it kind of makes complete emotional sense, I have to say. What was school like for you? Was it a refuge from what was going on at home? I mean, I I wasn't engaged at school. I left school at 16 with two GCSEs. I scraped in uh, English and maths. I suppose it was a a kind of escape from home uh, in lots of ways, but it wasn't really a thing in itself. Um, Yeah. So what were your options at the end of school then? What did you think the future might hold for you? Um, I don't know. Uh, I (laughs) I think part of that executioner sort of thinking is you don't really imagine yourself into a future mm. or any future you do imagine is catastrophic. Uh, yeah, so I didn't have big plans. So how did you discover philosophy? Um, I went to an open day at a college and they were having a sort of taste of philosophy session there. And I was, you know, I wasn't terribly behaved at school. I didn't get expelled or anything and... You know, I was, um, I would always kind of take the mickey and everything, but I sort of knew my limits. But I, I'd often get thrown out of classes or put in detention for being so argumentative. In a philosophy class, <laughs> y- you can be completely disagreeable and you get to stay in the class. In, in fact, you, you, you're doing well in the class if you sort of can um, keep challenging things all the time. And, and I think that. The teacher I met there saw that, saw the, the rough edges on that as well and kind of directed it towards something a bit more fruitful and uh, th- that would get me to university in the end. It really, though, is such an unexpected development when you just sort of describe the outside facts of, of your life, of, a, of, a, of the kid in this environment with this family who hasn't done well at school, suddenly finding philosophy as a rope through to, to somewhere else or a bridge through to something else. What what did that philosophy taster propose to you that grabbed you, do you remember? What was it that that suggested to you, hey, this might be something for you? I mean, I think the subject we were discussing was uh, how do we know that this is reality or not? How do we know this isn't just a very coherent dream or uh, that we're not sort of being manipulated in the matrix or anything? And I suppose I felt so marooned in my own sort of inexpressible reality at the time and so you know trapped in my own skull a lot of the time and quite alienated that it was like oh thank god there's someone else asking this question too (laughs) thank god you know and and you can really go at it you can if if you've got a problem with the world philosophy is a place where you can really go at that in in real detail and very thoroughly and so it was just having that particular forum, I think, for inquiry. You know, I would I would sort of walk down the high street in the town I grew up in and there'd be people like preaching the Bible or whatever. And, and this is before I found philosophy. I would sort of engage them, uh, often argumentatively. But 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 I didn't I didn't really sort of have a view as to whether God existed or not or whatever. I just... I just I just wanted someone who could meet that intensity and here was someone talking about on the street about hellfire and salvation and justice and creation and I just I needed I needed something that big to engage with Once you discovered philosophy did it help disarm this what you call this executioner in your head 
I don't know, actually. Did it I mean, give you, I guess, a, did it let you have a different relationship to your own thoughts, a different spaciousness around the beliefs oh, I you see, had? I see. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's two things I can say about that. One is, if you read um, the Stoics or the Epicureans, their interest was in something called ataraxia, cultivating a state of ataraxia, which, which means to be free from anxiety or fear or disturbance. And so a lot of these stoic meditations are actually about diffusing from that uh, dread which has come to, to sort of dominate or having fears but those fears not being bigger than you you know so in a practical sense those things have helped in, in a more sort of esoteric way yes there's there's something about philosophy that there's an acknowledgement in every philosophical conversation, that life is deeply ambiguous, that it's a real mystery, that the answers are not stable and set. And I think that's the very opposite of the executioner headspace, where things are incredibly black and white and certain, and there's no escape. Have you seen philosophy open a, a similar mental door for your students in prison? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, that opening the door, that you say there, that image that you've got of opening the door, because, of course, we we spoke about Wallace earlier and how he used to close his own door in order to feel free. And as much as I admire that kind of fortitude that Wallace had, I, I believe freedom isn't about being able to close your door, it's about being able to open it. I, th I think... I think um, Philosophy offers people a kind of temporary escape from where they are. I, I, I think my classes are, are one part of their day, the prisoners. It's just one part of their day, and, and a lot of it is spent in a much more survivalist setting. But for those two or three hours, we can be somewhere else. And there was a prisoner who, uh, after the end of one of my classes, he put a note on my desk that said two-hour holiday and a two-hour holiday is sort of prison slang for when you get a visit and you know your family your friends have come to visit you and you can just you can hear their news and you can be with them for two hours and they're not in prison they're not sort of hardened by it in the same way that you are and you you get to maybe be a different version of yourself and that someone had said you know being in, in a philosophy classroom was that kind of two-hour holiday so, so I don't know if it's opened doors in terms of has it changed people's entire lives? Probably not. I probably that's probably too grandiose. But in terms of just offering a different way of being who you are, yeah, I think mm. so. Some of the prisons you visit, Andy, have populations divided into mainstream prisoners and VPs. What are VPs? So a VP is a vulnerable prisoner. Anyone who if they were mixing with the mainstream prison population, would be in danger. Uh, so this can be people who've racked up debts, drug debts on the landing, uh, and can't pay them off. These could be people who would be quite unpopular amongst the prison population, like police officers uh, or judges, or people like that who've been convicted of crimes. The bulk of VPs are um, people who've committed sexual offences who, you know, within this sort of... Uh, hierarchy of prison would be considered 
fair game in terms of violence. And so what sort of precautions are taken with those prisoners? Oh, they're kept in a, on a separate wing. There's several heavily locked doors between them and the mainstream population. They use different rooms. They move at different times. Yeah. And for you as a teacher, how is the, the atmosphere of those classes different than the ones you have with, with the regular prisoners? There's a lot of differences. One is the mainstream prison population tends to be sort of working class, underclass. And you do get that in VP population as well, but you also get a few PhDs, priests, imams, teachers, professors, people who've been in positions of power, which perhaps that's been part of what they've exploited in uh, committing their crime. Uh, so there's often several people in the room who are more educated than me. In terms of the emotional atmosphere, a mixture, a mixture. Uh, you know, some people regard them being there with a certain amount of self-victimization, that they sort of blame their wife or victim. And others are a sort of radiate shame and a sort of darkness. What sort of, of topics, philosophical topics, have engendered the most discussion with those inmates? I mean, everything, really, everything. I think it's such a charged... They're in such a particular circumstance, I think, of having having committed the crime for which there is no redemption in our society. There is no way back, at least most of the time. You know, whereas a lot of shoplifters and drug addicts and gangsters and, and you know, even sort of murderers have these sort of narrative arcs where they can turn their life around and give something back... Nobody really wants that from a paedophile. Mm. So, so everything is quite loaded, I think, when you're in that, in that state of being so alone. But one thing that was particularly pertinent was a few years ago we discussed the Edward Colston statue. I don't know if it made the news there in Australia, but we had a statue in Bristol of a philanthropist called Edward Colston who'd built sort of schools and homes for the poor and things like that throughout Bristol. But he made his money through the slave trade. And there's been a statue in Bristol for a long time with a plaque saying, here stands the city's most virtuous man. And there'd been a lot of conversation about whether to take it down or not. Eventually it was taken down, not not by the state, but by people who just sort of had enough. Um during 2020. However, before that had happened, when it was still a sort of open question, we discussed it. And it, I suppose it was this question of whether people who have done bad things sort of belong in society and to what degree they belong in society anymore. And, you know, how much can we celebrate what they've given us, uh, given the bad stuff they've done? I mean, we're having this conversation about Figures like Colston, Rhodes, we're, we're talking about it in relation to artists and all, in all kinds of ways at the moment, aren't we? And it's a, per um, a personal question, I guess, for those inmates in a different way. Yes. And, and you know, there were those who, who were firmly on the sort of relativist side who said, you know, we would have been just the same had we been alive in that time. We're all, we're all caught up in something bigger than us. Just leave the statue where it is. Uh, and those who you know, were quite glad to see it removed and perhaps in that was something of their own self-castigation and shame. One of the really interesting responses I had 
was a guy who said you should keep it but try and try and have the whole context there of the good and the bad and i said what well, you know can you say how and he he said you should get a chainsaw and you should cut it in half <laughs> that is and, a creative and, response <laughs> well i i suppose i sort of saw that for him sort of having been who he was and then committed the crimes he'd committed you know was he sort of feeling as though he was living as half a person now that his social self was sort of half a person or maybe the way he appeared to himself was in that kind of severed half existing state um it was it was a very powerful image i, I still don't quite know what to make of it you started teaching in in a women's prison andy did you think it would be easier perhaps than than in the men's jails various people had told me that it was easier because there's often less violence women's prisons tend to be more relaxed there's more time unlocked women in the prisons I was working in had their own cells and that kind of thing. Uh, some people said it was harder, harder emotionally, more intense, very socially intense. I think having heard all that advice, what I realise is that we bring so much of ourselves to those uh, evaluations of whether something is harder or more difficult. It was One thing that was very different about it is men's prisons are, are very lonesome places. People don't the way people survive them very often is to not engage, not get caught up, just keep your head down. People don't really make friends. You know, you may have acquaintances or something, but there, there are no strong friendships in that group. So when people come into my class, I often have to create the feeling of a group and trust and communication and everything. In women's prisons, people are much more entangled. You know, I'd, I'd have women holding hands in my classroom, uh, all resting their head on each other's shoulders, and everyone knows everyone's business. <laughs> and and so actually I had to be let into their group rather than creating a group. And the artwork is, is different too. Yeah, one of the curious things, uh, so one of the high security prisons I work in, there's pictures of Alsatians, the, you know, the, the dogs that the prison use, uh, sniffer dogs or security dogs, big Alsatians kind of framed on the wall. And in the women's prison, there are, there's this these canvases of uh, uh, this kitten, this little white kitten with green eyes and pointed ears and, you know, often on sort of pink linen, you know, and it's there's a soft focus. And, um, yeah, it's very curious, that one. The gender binary is alive and well in the, in the prison yeah. system. <laughs> yes. How do you feel when you come home after a day of work teaching in prisons what's your what's your emotional state like what's your exhaustion like um partly depends where the prison is i mean pensonville's very curious because it would never be built in that location if it if it were built today it's in king's cross you know it's in zone one of london it's an area of prime real estate and you come out and within five minutes there's google there's some really nice Michelin-style restaurants. There's a world which can make you believe that life can be just a very smooth experience. And yet, you know, a thousand metres away, there's this world of deprivation and suffering and violence and chaos. So that, so that can be quite strange. 
and and can be quite it can be quite alienating sometimes to come out. Uh, I often go for walks in nature um, after coming out of prison if I can make a detour into a park uh, and just hear the wind in the trees. That's great. Uh, I often have to wash my hair. Uh, the smell of like prison, the, that stale smell, the smell of like industrial cleaning products and old mattresses and. 1300 men and the smell of weed and stuff like that it it lingers in your on your clothes and in your hair so that's part of it as well of course there's also the personal aspect in all of this for me in that you know every time i as i'm leaving the prison and the men are being banged up for the night i'm aware that that could have been me Mm. on bad days i think it should have been me what what do you mean just the sort of executioner Mm. feeling that I shouldn't be able to leave. So so leaving for me, sometimes there's a tremendous bursting sense of gratitude of just being able to look at the sky unframed by the prison walls, at being able to go into a shop and buy a Coca-Cola, you know, at being able to to just, you know, walk for a few kilometres. The smallest things become charged with significance. So the fact that you do go voluntarily into these institutions that you have worked so hard not to be forced into, how do you make sense of it? What what do you think is impelling you to do this work of teaching in prisons? One of the reviewers of my book said that um, perhaps, perhaps West is seeking a kind of exposure therapy uh, and that felt sort of uncomfortably accurate. <laughs> um, I think it's often been a kind of moral imperative for me. So part of you know visiting my brother inside on that Christmas Eve and coming away from that experience, it's the coming away from it where you learn so much because you learn that most people don't know about this place and they're either sort of at best ignorant and indifferent or at worst they believe people should be in these institutions that are very dehumanising and that prison should be tougher and more brutal. And and so I think having known prisoners as on the human level, on the intimate human level, I felt a real moral urgency and imperative to to not forget and to not unsee uh, what I'd seen behind the wall or what I glimpsed the edges of in that visitor centre. So I think part of returning to it for me is a, about trying to maintain some positive moral order in the world where we don't live separately from each other, where we're not blithe to the fact that we live in a very unfair society. It's your uh, tilt to making it more of a just world than a luck world. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps, yes. Do you imagine that there'll come a time when you will feel you've done your time in in jail? Or is this is this a life sentence, Andy West, that you're <laughs> constructing for yourself? Um, yes, I think at the moment the classroom is still uh, one of the places I find most thrilling. So I, I want to stay there. And the prison classroom has a special significance for mm. me. So we'll see. How is your brother Jason doing now? He's doing well. Um, he's quite he's quite excited about the book uh, and having having these stories. And, and he's been totally supportive 
um, of it. And, you know, I got to write about him honestly whilst he was supportive. And that's, that's not something I take for granted, you know. And what about your mum, who had such a, a terribly difficult time as a younger woman? What sort of life has she been able to build for herself? I, I think um, things like uh, prison and uh, prison visits are officially historical for her now. They, they belong in a different time. And I think maybe some of the shame she had around that, that sort of led to some of the secrecy and things becoming unspeakable I, th- I think that's diminished and and we can talk much more frankly about those things now and if you let us inside your head at this point in your life Andy where's that inner executioner at these days where is he at good question I don't I don't hear from him much yeah I think if 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 you'd asked me that um a year or so ago, I would say to you, you know, he's still he's still stomping his feet, but uh, I think it's best to just ignore him. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like all bullies, they do go away when you ignore them. So, yeah, I feel, you know, I'm, I'm sure there will be episodes again where I'm confronted with these quite deep feelings. Uh, but for now, I feel very relaxed. I feel cheerful. And and optimistic. Well, I really, I really love hearing your story and I'm really grateful to you just for sharing it with us on Conversations. Thank you for being my guest, Andy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Andy West was my guest on Conversations today. Andy's book is called The Life Inside, a memoir of prison, family and philosophy. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.